Today's guest is Terry Ellis, who was a career criminal and armed robber who has written an amazing book about his time spent in a therapeutic prison called Grendon. In this episode, we talk about his upbringing and how he climbed through the ranks of the criminal underworld. He explains his warped sense of self, why you have to be an idiot to do robberies, and how his first attempt at rehabilitation failed. This is part one of three parts with Terry. It's utterly fascinating. My name's Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. From a very young age, from the age of 11, um, I was put in a community, oh, put in a home by my mum. And then I had graduated through the care system. I went to a place called um, Stanford Ass in Shepherd's Bush, spent a year there. And then, I, and then I graduated from there into a place called Green Acres Community Centre. And then I moved, after a year, two years there, I moved back to London. I then was placed in a, in a, in a flat in a Swiss Cottage with two older guys. I always think I was 16 or 17 and I was. I was quite a big guy, training and boxing all the time. Okay. And these guys were in their 20s, 21, up to 24. And because I couldn't go back home, I had to, I had to stay in this place. So. I was a young guy in London. My my dad was a was an arm robber. Uh, my mum was a, a professional shoplifter, uh, and because of that, I went in a home. We fast forward to to the age of seventeen. I'm now in a flat in Swiss Cottage with these two guys, who then offer me to come on some jobs with them, to doing post offices and building societies and banks. Uh, as a young impressionable guy, I took to it like a duck to water. As a young kid, I suffered from dyslexia, um, so I used to that used to make me really angry. Uh, being in care made me even angrier and being abandoned as as from mum and, and my family made me even angrier so there was a lot of anger that anger then came out in, in lots of different ways but it also showed people that I was capable so because of my capabilities as, as someone who can look after itself um, I was then offered to go on on the first job and and the first one was successful in fact we upped our game what was the first job the first job was, was a post office in um I say in Swiss Cottage. I'd been looking at it for a few days. I realised that the guy used to, used to come there and used to park around the back of the, the post office, and then and go in and then come out and, and you know refill the shelves with some 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 bits and pieces. But he used to leave the back door open, um, where they were used to going in the front door. These guys just holding a shotgun up and, and and hoping that he would open up the cage and pass the money through because they'd done it a few times. These guys it, they fell spectacularly. So I'd seen this and I said, look, you know, maybe we should do this way. And so what we did, I, I then took them, took the lead on this first job, and uh, I went in the back way uh, when he walked in. I asked him to sit down. I cuffed him up, um, sat him on the toilet. One of the guys kept stayed with him. Uh, the other one was in the car. And, and uh, I went through to the, the main post office. There's about 10 or 15 people queuing up. And, and because they're on a time lock, uh, most, most, uh, uh, they normally go off about 10, 10 to 9 or 10 past 9. I waited for the time lock to go off. And then I, I, I went in the safe, took the, took the, the box off the front, went in, took everything, and I just walked out of there. And I thought it was, it was really good. It was actually, for me, it was like taking candy from a baby. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. So we then spent the next few years just doing the same thing, you know. At that point, were you aware of, of what the consequences of it can be? Did you ever, was part of the assessment of, because presumably because you were well organised. Yeah. Did you ever think we could get caught for this? Do you know what? You know, as, as far as victimology is concerned, um, I never ever took any notice of, of, of the victims because, you know, I had a warped sense of uh, self-worth. You know, I thought I was I thought I was different. I lived above the laws. 
and I thought I could just take what I wanted. I never ever gave anyone a second thought. It was only um, a couple of years after that then I, when I was walking into my flat in Hampstead and every door in the place came open and loads of guys came running out with snub-nosed revolvers and one smashed me across the head. My legs went up from underneath me. Someone kicked me in the bollocks and someone whacked me in the face and I was spread-eagled on the floor. And, and that was the first time I actually realised that this was, was not a game anymore. Uh, and it was the start of... of start of my apprenticeship as, as, a, as, a, as a career criminal um, because the places that were set up to rehabilitate me were actually just breeding grounds uh, for, uh, for, for mixing uh, or, you know, learning new acquaintances, you know. So it was a network of, of, of skullduggery across London. So I think I, I got four years for that as a young boy. I ended up in, um, in Owlsbury Young Offenders after doing a couple of, you know, Chelmsford, Owlsbury, Ashford. I remember going to Ashford and and where I think that would have been the first time that I actually thought, you know what, this 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 is not a game anywhere. So now I need to either rehabilitate myself. So I, I started going on a, a, a paint and decorating course, and I thought I'd you know try and you know get some employment skills so I can go out. Unfortunately, the powers of the B at that time, the the, the officers were all ex uh, ex servicemen, and they didn't think twice about giving young kids a good kicking. So I spent I spent a, a three or four months down the block um, and being abused by them and beaten up um, after after chatting uh, back chatting one of them once and you know one incident led to another and another and another and I, I think I'd done six or seven months down the block which made me so angry at, at authority by this stage that I then came out of prison worse than when I ever went in you know because now I hated authority I hated everybody I thought the world owed me something and I was going to go out and take it. It's interesting that you that you use the phrase you had to rehabilitate or you wanted to rehabilitate yeah. yourself. So there was no so there was no one actually telling you. Do you know there's always a part of me that actually just wanted to get a job, have a wife, have a kid, and, and live a normal life. Okay. But you know, as I said, I suffer from dyslexia. You know, unfortunately, back in them days, um, my embarrassment stopped me from asking the teachers. There was nothing in place in schools that, that, that could deal with that problem. So what they did, they just excluded me. So, you know, so I never got the opportunity to actually sit with someone and actually learn to read and write. And that made me even angrier. It made me embarrassed in front of my peers as well because I couldn't admit it. Sure. So most, most people I know that are criminals or career criminals, I, I found out along the way, most of them suffer from dyslexia. Most of them suffer from that, that, that embarrassment of, of not being able to read or write. So what they do then is that they then turn, they turn all that anger into or they turn towards crime because they can't do anything else. You know, the, the, the dread of actually going to a job and being turned down is, is, uh, is, is frightening. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, but the actual going into, into a bank is actually easier. Now, that's the mentality you're dealing with, you know, because, you know, shame and ego is, 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 a, is, a, is an emotion that most of us uh, you know, don't want to deal with. You know, we, we rather skirt around it. To actually deal with it, you have to face, you have to face and admit that you've actually got a problem. Um, and going into somewhere and admitting to all my peers I had dyslexia was, was not something I relished. It was actually easy for me to actually put the persona on that I was this big, odd man that could do anything, would be the first one into, into a post office, a bank or building society or do any whatever I was offered, right. um, was, was actually easier. Yeah. You know, so, so, so I created a persona. I created who, who I thought everyone wanted me to be. Okay. And that was the start of my apprenticeship into the criminal underworld, you know. And how quickly does word travel then that about this persona and this person who's who's uncompromising and the first in? 
How does work get around? I think you know we you know I came from I come from Camden Town, and and uh, there are certain uh, drinking clubs and and, cl- and clubs that we used to go to that only the criminal element f- uh, f- uh, frequented. If you're a young guy in your 20s who've got loads of money, a car, loads of birds, and you're into drugs and everything else, you then walk in there and you're accepted like a, one of the one of the brothers. It's very easy. Does that mean that, and obviously I'm not asking you to be disparaging of anybody, but does that mean that everyone in that world creates a persona then? Is, is that part of it? Is front part of it? If you don't know any better, I think it's just a normal. You normalise it. We're talking about generations of people you know, from the war that have grown up with nothing. Uh, who, whose, whose parents have got nothing and the only way that they could subsidise their income was by buying Nick stuff, going out and feeding from the warehouses. You know, I remember when we I, we lived next to the, the King's Cross and um, the canal and all the way along the canal from Camden Town to King's Cross was warehouses. And I spent my time as a kid um, going down there and, and, and if I wanted clothes, I'd go and break in and take clothes. I wanted toys, biscuits, cakes, comics. We never had the money to buy anything. We never even had the money for shoes. So, you know, we learned, we learned early on that it was acceptable to take whatever we wanted because our parents wouldn't say nothing. And if we actually gave them part of the bounty, they would actually be pleased. They would only be displeased if we got caught by the old bill and had to come down to the police station because I can remember getting slapped on so many occasions, my mum and dad. That it was, you know, if you get caught, I'm going to come down and slap the life out of you. But if you don't get caught and you bring everything home and, and I can have it, then that's okay. So when you got that sort of warped upbringing you 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 know you you, you see why the, the majority of kids growing up ended up in prison yeah of course yeah no, that, that makes sense i wanted mm. to ask you you know just about about the crime chat if if you had one with your parents and what the extent of that was because if they've been involved in crime do you know my, my dad was 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 an absent father i left us before i was born so you know the chat i had with him was when he came up uh, if I if I got kicked out of school, I was you know whatever I'd get a slap. If my mum phoned him, I'd get another whack. So basically, his chats didn't amount to anything apart from corporal punishment right. on her behalf. The only chat she did was to actually teach me and encourage me how to do shoplifting, how to break into places. She used to wake me up in the middle of the night and actually ask me to go into warehouses and pass all the stuff out of her. And she would then sell it down to the bingo, and that would be okay. So no, I never had the chat, um, but I did have an education of. Uh, a criminality, yeah. You know, if, if you if you talk about nature versus nurture, yes. Um, I was brought up in a, in a world that that championed taking what didn't belong to us. Yeah, which makes which makes sense to me. I, and you took leadership straight away, which is interesting. You took initiative, and and I find that very interesting as well to take to take control and to be in charge in your first job. That's extraordinary. I think I think as a young kid, you know, because my dad was absent, you know. Um, it was left up to me and my brother, um, unfortunately, because I was actually I, I had an aptitude for getting into places. You know, I, I could break into anywhere. I used to phone alarms. You know, I was always quite a genius about finding ways to get into places. I would take, you know, I take the whole windows out, tape them up. I knew I had to, from a very young age to to bypass alarm systems. I, I just had a knack for it. But as a young kid, because I was actually going out and feeding my two sisters and my brother and my mum. It was actually, it actually became normal. You know, I was the, I was the sort of, I seemed like to be the adult of the family. And I was only, I was only young. I was like 11 years old. I was going out, I was going to burgling shops at night. You know, I remember, you know, I, I remember going to Kentish Town Police Station and walking up the side of their, their, their alleyway and up climbing up a drain pipe on top, top of the roof. And I could see into the police station and I took all the slates off. I went through the roof, 
I then took half a door off because of the alarm system inside the shop and then came out there with like carrier bags full of cigarettes and came down the same way. And I was just so brazen. I don't know, I don't know what it was. I just never had no fear, no empathy. And I just seemed to thrive on the fact that, that I liked the adrenaline rush and I liked the fact that they were there so close and I got away with it. And I, and I used to think, well, how, how did they feel about this? And how did they feel the next morning that someone had the audacity to actually rob the shop that we go into every day? I don't think, you know, I think subconsciously that's what I would like to think. Yeah. But I think the rally was, it was just they were there to be robbed, you know. And, and, and I, you know, I'd, I'd done so many shops in Camden and Candice Town as a kid. I just worked my way up, unfortunately. Were other people kind of giving you some kind of reward in terms of praise for doing it as well? Because I'm assuming it must be a... a, a please don't think of putting words in your mouth, I'm not. But is it not a buzz to be that guy? I think, I think part of it was being a man of the ass I was actually learning a trade criminal trade and I was actually getting good at what I did you know when you can't read or write you know you you try to excel at other things so for me I was about putting all my energies into to thieving and getting into places which I actually thought was normal you know that age so you know so I tried I tried to be the best at whatever I did whether it was writing books whether it's um, playing football uh, anything, you know, I tried to be the best, at, you know, the best armed robber, you know, the best yeah. burglar, the best this, so, I've been the best drug dealer eventually. Yeah, you know? okay. You know, so, I, I don't know, for me, I, it was just, it was just a case of just honing my skills so I didn't have to go back inside. Okay, that's interesting that you didn't want to go back, well, does, does, any, does anybody on the wrong side of the law want to go to no, jail? No, you know, you know, for us, you know, that is, you know, prison is an occupational hazard, it, it, it holds no fear. Right. You know, you know, there's a misconception or misnomer to think that prison holds any fear for anybody. It's just a holding factory where or warehouse where we go and we have to spend a couple of years there until we get out again. We then network in there, and by the time we get out of it, we then know where to buy cars, guns, drugs. We're actually more proficient at doing, you know, doing the things we did than actually before we went in. You know, because the networking inside prison is 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 is, is it's like the it's like the, the, the internet. <laughs> but you're meeting guys you're actually forming relationships you're actually forming bonds and you're actually you know you're actually meeting people that you will become friends with for many many years you know but there's lots of different types of people who go to prison though isn't there I mean it's not I, I'd like to, to think that there's not just one type of prisoner you get people who are in there for silly reasons sometimes don't you I think you've got you know there's a, you know, there's a broad spectrum of, uh, of, of prisoners you know you've got the shoplifters you've got your drug offences you, you know they have to go out and feed their habits fraudsters you've got you've got everything you've got the arm robbers um you've got the drug importers you know yeah. you've got smugglers you know you you know you you know you you've got a far spectrum of of of, uh, of criminality goes through there but you're going you're going i remember going in as a as a as a, as a robber and then i met someone inside and came out doing the jump ups right so you know i met an old guy and he then explained to me how the jump ups worked so instead of going out and getting uh, 20 years to doing armed robberies, I then came out as, as a young guy, I think in my t- 20s, uh, early 20s, and started doing the jump-ups for about four or five years. And the jump-ups is what we did, we just follow vans. So you follow vans going into doing delivery, right. um, they were then, or a lorry, they would then go and do delivery, and the time they come round or come back to the van, we cleared it all off. You know, we would, we would chub the lock, yeah. Uh, if it was a lorry, we'd clear the whole lock off on, onto one of our vans, and then we put another lock on there. So they would same lock that they had. You know, they, they couldn't open any key. So when they got back, they just assumed 
that they, that they couldn't get into their lot, not realising that we were driving the other direction with all their stuff. So I don't know, that, was, that, was, that was really easy because, you know, you go on any street in London, you'll, you'll see vans pulling up, you'll see... You know, people with computer systems, alcohol, uh, electrical goods, and they're normally going, if it's, if it's like, just say a simple one would be washing machines, you know, you know that the guy coming off there, or two of them have got to take that washing machine up to the flats. They've also got to take it out of the box. They got, and they got to fill it in for the person. That then gives you 10 or 15 minutes to actually take their lock off, take everything they got on that lorry, and then chub it back up again and go on your way. So it was, it was such an easy job. I, I, you know, I stayed there for five or six years, uh, and and two, and until I got a, a look at a friend of mine got Nick for a uh, Nick and a lorry load of uh, computers. We sold, uh, he sold them, and and uh, you know he, he had the the, the flying squad on him and everything else. And and then I end up in Spain. I end up going to Spain. Okay. You know. I'd like to ask you a bit more about the networking because I hear people talk about sort of respect, and I hear people quite often. Uh, some of the people I've met anyway talk about being real. Did you, uh, first of all, what does being real mean? How can people tell if you're authentic? And did you not have to sort of earn the right to be able to network? Because, say, for example, I went to jail. Yeah. I don't think anyone would teach me, would they? I think, I, think, uh, I think it's about you as a person. I think it's about the way you come across, the way you hold yourself. Okay. If, you, if, you can, if you can hold yourself with everyone, you know, not just articulate or conversation-wise. You, you have to have a, have a, a degree in, in criminality. So you have to do your apprenticeship. So, you know, when you say, you know, when you, when you, when you start talking to people, you sort of, you realise that they're the same as you because they've been on the same road. They know how to do this, they know how to do that. And you think, you know what, he's one of us. And then you'll get someone come into our, into a company that is a legend in their own heads. Yeah. And, and, and they have a perception of, of what, what we want to hear. So they will then start talking about jobs and you really you know straight away that they haven't got any, any uh, clue what they're talking about. So they will then go to the wayside. You will then, you will then have a network of friends in there that you knew that you could trust, you know? Yeah. You know, so, you know, you know, I knew I could go to four or five people. But don't get me wrong. You know, you can do five years in prison and you'll come out with just five people that you would actually meet outside. You know, it's not, it's not the network that, that you assume. It's only a network that, that is forged over a five or six years with people that you trust. You don't just go in there and you can work with anyone. But then the knowledge from five people is a huge amount. Oh it? yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, and you share that knowledge. You share, you share that. You know, I, I remember going in and thinking, God, you know, I could do that. I could use that on what I do. I can do that. Okay. You know, so you so you do, and then you, you know, I remember as I said, I, you know, I, we we got a look at him because of someone I met in there. I then could, I was able to phone him and say, Look, I've just had a look. I need to fuck off out of the country. I need to get. I need to get to Spain. I said, "Don't worry, I've got a lorry. It's going out tomorrow." So I got in the back of a lorry and I was gone. You know, so so that's the sort of network I'm talking about. I'm just talking in like network. If no one gives you nothing in this game, you have to earn it. You know, uh, and you know, it's a favour for a favour. You know, so I went over there. I then reciprocated that favour by working over there and by doing certain things. I used to, I used to you know, pick up puff. I used to pack it. And I used to, I used to drop it up to from Marbella to Valencia. Right. Um, and I used to do the runs, so you know the runs were uh, were an experience that, that that not for the faint hearted because in them days you had roadblocks. So at any given time you can have a, they they set up a rolling roadblock. So as you're driving along, twenty foot in front of you, the lights would go on and the whole road would shut down, and all of a sudden every single car would be searched. So that anxiety through that uh, <laughs> used to be palpable. You know, I remember driving along and I would be sweating and I would be singing roadblock for some fucking crazy reason. But we had it sorted because we, had, we used to have a driver in front 
Um, we used to have a driver at the back with uh, British plates. So if, and then we had phones, so if anything went wrong and we had a time to perfection, if it, there was a rolling roadblock, he would spot it. If he didn't spot it and it, and it, and it looked like it was, it was, it was going to set a roadblock, the guy over behind me with the English plates would fly past and all the old Bill would go after him, which gave me the opportunity to just go on my merry way with the gear. So, you know, I've, I've done that for, for a couple of years. I never got caught, um, but it was um, it was an ex- it was an experience. That, uh, another experience that's, that's, yes, that's, that set me up. Um, you know, to, 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 you know, to stay out, to stay away from uh, you know, stay away from stay away from uh, doing what I was doing before. You know, you know, I, I went over there. I, I changed from doing jump ups, and I was now a drug runner. You know, right. unfortunately, one of the guys uh, um, who I was working with was driving one night and he went off a cliff. Um, uh, he was actually friends of one of my pals and, and because of that we had to, we had to, I had to leave, I had to leave uh, Sharpish because we didn't want any, because uh, we always used to frequent the same places and that. So I decided to fuck off to, um, to Amsterdam. So I went over there for, for a little while and I got involved in uh, there. Um, and a friend of mine I was working with over there, two of them, uh, one got shot uh, and paralyzed, the other got shot and killed. Um, so I decided to come back to England. Okay. You mentioned anxiety, and that's really interesting. And in terms of the four or five people in prison who you're able to have a conversation with and, and to trust, would any of you ever discussed at that point anxiety or fear? I think most people would rather talk about adrenaline rush. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I think I can understand that. You know, because, they know, you, know, you know, everyone would, you know, people... I have to give the perception that they thrive in this game. Now, you know, I always, whenever I say anything to anyone, you have to be an idiot to do robberies. Right. You know, because, you know, it takes a certain, bit of, you have to be a certain idiot to actually go and actually do this. You know, if you consider that you're putting yourself in a firing line, you know, of being oboed, uh, if the old Bill were looking at you and you've got a gun, the chances are that when you walk into that, that job, you're going to be shot nowadays. Yeah. So you got, you know, there's also, um, there's also a sense of camaraderie with, when you've got the guys. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a hell of a lot of, of anxiety um, and frustration. Everyone acts differently. I got I work with lots of guys, um, ex-army, a couple of them, um, the normal guys that, that grew up from the streets and were done their apprentices on the street on the pavement, as we call it. Uh, some of them would use humour. You know, they would, they would make it. They'd laugh and joke. So that was their way of coping. Yeah. Uh, some would be. Uh, some would start talking like, excessively about uh, what's going to happen. Uh, some would be very reserved and not say nothing, insular. And me, I, you know, me, my, my anxiety was, but I would always go and look at the job. You know, I'd, I'd go through it in my head and I'd go through everything that would go wrong. So my fear would be so intense that when I got there, that normally it would go really smooth because normally your fear of something is probably far worse than actually anything really that I could throw at you. Yeah. So, you know, I'd normally get there and, and, and in, it would just go really easy. I, I found it was in slow motion. You know, for the, for the moments we got there, I could feel my focus was just focused to getting everyone either down, uh, cuffed, and then secured, and the whole place secured. And then, and then five minutes after that, then I would come down, simply because I knew that the, the silent alarm hadn't gone off. No one had got out of there. Everyone was secure. No one was, uh, and then we can then sort of bring our lorries in and do whatever we was going to do or whatever we were doing there. Okay. But it was, you know, that first five minutes is probably the worst because if you get seen going in there, you have to remember that, you know, you're in there, you're in a closed building and potentially the place could be surrounded. So there's an anxiety about that. 
there's a trepidation about coming out and being shot, being being jumped by the old bill. But normally, as I said, your fear is far worse. You know, normally you're in there. You know, I think you know we would stay in the place for half an hour. I think the most we ever stayed in was an hour. Yeah. Um, in in there, I remember coming out of that one. That was that was quite a moment. You know, um, because you know, you know, even though we was on top of it, and and, and we we was uh, we had we had spotters. You know, was still there was still a, a trepidation about coming out, but we did, and, and it was successful. Yeah. You know, but yeah, a lot of lot of a lot of a, a fear, a lot of anxiety, more so than what most people let on to be. Most people would just say, you know, it's an adrenaline. Yeah. That's, you know, I always met people that say, I love doing this. I don't think I've ever loved doing it. It's, it was only a means to an end for me. I was good at doing it, but I, I can never ever say the word love yeah. in the same sentence of doing a, doing a robbery because it's just, it's just stupidity. I think people will use the word, I love doing this because I get a buzz out of it. They're the people that are just idiots. Uh, and they're the people that have probably never ever been on a job. You know, everyone I know that have been on the job, I think you have to look at the other side, the human side of it. Um, and unfortunately there is. You know, we've got kids, we've got families, we've got people that rely on us. And when we use it, this is our job. Yeah. So when we go out, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that 99.9, we go on a bit of work. We never, ever have any trouble. We never go out to harm anyone because the minute you arm someone is the minute that you're going to get a look at. The minute the shit's going to hit the fan, your karma changes. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I, know, I, know, I know that the victimology says that we're all victims and we terrorize people, but... From my, my my mental point when I was doing it, we we, we, we covered every angle that we never hurt anyone, you know. And, and and what we did, we then justified it in our heads that it was acceptable. Yeah. So you know, so you know, what I'm saying we had kids, we had to get home to, yeah. we had wives, we had to get home to, and we had to feed everyone. So we actually we actually saw this as a job that we went out and we actually saw ourselves as some sort of fucking Robin Hoods and some sort of heroes that we weren't. Okay. You know, we were we were we were we were callous uncaring people they didn't give a shit about no one so 2007 then was that the biggest job I think it was one of them I think there's you know many more that I've never yeah. came to deny okay <laughs> if, we, if we talk about Verizon um, Verizon no one wanted to do it because it was seen as a high risk job okay um, and JP Morgan uh, was was uh, it was their building um, so they had um, you know 24 hour security biometric uh, high scanners, hand scanners, and, and pin codes on every single door. There was a police station at the end of the road. There was one at the other end, and there was one opposite the side of it, basically. So it was in, it was in the triangle of, 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 of being nicked if you went in there. Um, so everyone that looked at it said, look, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's not something that we would approach simply because it's, it's, too, it's too risky. You know, you get seen going in there, you're, you're fucked. If, you're, if the alarm goes off, there's no way out because it backs onto the canal. There's three police stations within, within that proximity. You've got to be an idiot to do it. Unfortunately, as I said, you need to be an idiot to do these sort of things. So it was like a red rag to a ball to us. Uh, we looked at it and, you know, like everything, there's a flaw. The human element is a flaw. They, I think they had eight to ten security guards in there. They had maintenance people in there and they had cleaners. I think, you know, the night there's 15 or 16 people in there when we, when we went down there. And I remember, you know, thinking, you know what, this is going to be really easy simply because when I looked at it, I saw people going in and out of there and they were, they were buzzing them in. So, you know, so we just upped our game a little bit. We went and got an Alsatian. We had all the, all the, uni all the uniforms, all the hats and the, yeah. the gloves and everything. We looked the part. We was a fast response robbery squad. So we had, a, we had cars, police cars, and we had a van. 
And uh, when we drove down there, we drove down and we changed the vans, everything else around the corner. And then we went on it. You know, we pulled up onto the pavement. I can remember a police car coming past as, as we were doing this, you know. And I'll I, I tell you what happened, first of all, to be honest, is that when we were driving down there, there was a police car siren went on behind us. And at that moment, we all, we all, we all thought it was on top. So we just carried on driving and they came around us. We was all in police uniforms and they came around us and fucked off. They went, so we, we went round in a circle and we came back again. And, you know, there was that moment everyone was thinking, shall we abort this? That's a bit of bad luck. And I said, no, no, we're going to carry on. We're going to carry on doing it. The adrenaline's flying. Let's just fucking do it. You know, we're in now. Um, so I, I pulled up onto the pavement, car pulled to the side, dog got out, I got out, knocked on the, I rang the bell, all three security guards come over, got on the intercom and said, I said, open the door for I showed them my ID. And said, we've just had reports of someone getting in through the, through the roof here and we're going, to, we're going to come and search the building. They buzzed me in. And I took one of their, 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 ran their, ran their, their next day, all that uh, cars that you can get in the doors. I took one of them off them and I took the rest of them. And I said, like, you know, we've also had reports that the guy getting through the roof was actually dressed as a security guard. So I said, for my protection and my officer protection, I'm going to cuff everybody in here until I find out who you are. And then we're going to search the building with the dog. So I want you all to come into, into the hallway here. So I took him into the stairwell and then I cuffed, we cuffed everyone. And then we said, look, it's, it's, it's perfectly okay. Everyone's going to be fine. Just sit down and stay here while we search the building. Everyone was fine. We then got a few maintenance people, four or five uh, cleaners, and we put them all in the same place. And we told them that there was someone in the building that, that was potentially would, could harm them if, if anything, if they came out. So we said, stay there. And we left one of the guys there to look after them, reassuring them nothing was going to happen. And then we then went round and we found the room that we, we wanted was, uh, was full of motherboards. There was a hundred rooms in this. Apparently, there was three hundred rooms in this place, all with all with uh, computer chips. But the one that we wanted was 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 a JP Morgan, and that was along with all the data. That was the one with uh, one hundred twenty thousand pound motherboards. So we, I think, there was about four million quid's worth out of that one we got. They said a million. They said five million. They said six million. But yeah. I think when we when we did cost it, it was about three or four million quid. So we then we then took them out and we then put them into holdalls, ten or fifteen of them we had, and we put them near the front door. And then when it was time to go, when we got everyone in place, we had a phone call from the security department saying, what's going on there? From their security company, want to know what happened to them. We just said there's been a surge in the computer and it's, and it's, it's knocked out all the cameras tonight. And it'll be up and running in 10 or 15 minutes. And I think we spent an hour and so in there. And then, and then we just got the bags each and we came out two at a time and we just put all the bags in the thing, got in the car. And that was it. We was on our way. Um, I think they got they they actually were released about one o'clock in the morning. We left about ten ten o'clock ish. I think they was, they just thought that it was it was taking longer than it should be. Yeah. But we assured them that you know we were searching the building. It was it would take a long time. Never realised at the time that you know what they were actually going through. It was only until I'd done you know therapy and bits and pieces that I realised that you know what I did to these people was was outrageous. That's the end of part one. So thank you very much for listening. I'm going to leave some links in the notes to Terry's social media and, of course, a link to his book as well. I appreciate your support with the podcast. I really do. And please have a listen to part two and part three. I'll speak to you soon.